I had a coffee this afternoon, a coffee cliff bar, and then chocolate chips. <laughs> Renal physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidneys and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis, this is Channel Your Enthusiasm, the Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we have the full house. Melanie? Oh, hi, I'm Melanie Honey. You want more? Yeah, a little bit more. <laughs> you know, maybe where you were, maybe oh, what you Melanie. do. <laughs> I'm Melanie Honig, and I work at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I'm lucky enough to teach renal physiology to the Harvard Medical students. Excellent. JC? Hi, uh, Juan Carlos Velez. I'm a nephrologist and chair of the department at Auctioner Health System in New Orleans. I'm very excited for tonight's ch- chapter. Excellent. Letty? Hi everyone, I'm Leticia Rolona. I'm a nephrologist at UCSF. I also teach renal physiology to the medical students here and also excited to uh, delve into this chapter. Roger. Uh, Roger Rodby. I'm at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. I'm the fellowship program director for 20 years now, which is 15 more than the average. Beat <laughs> <laughs> in the eyes. <laughs> uh, Josh. Sure, I'm Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrology research fellow here at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and I'm a structural biologist and biochemist. And Anna. I'm Anna Gaddy. I'm a nephrology fellow at Indiana University. Amy just joined us. Hi, uh, sorry I'm late. This is uh, Amy Yao. I am a clinical assistant professor of medicine here at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Uh, tonight we are starting, we're doing the front half of chapter two in the fifth edition of Clinical Physiology of Acid Base and Electrolyte Disorders. Uh, This chapter is titled Renal Circulation and Glomerular Filtration Rates. Burton Rose starts off this chapter, says uh, renal blood flow is 20% of uh, cardiac output. You know, so, you know, cardiac output is uh, five liters. So this is about one liter per minute uh, floating through the kidney. And I always thought it was really interesting that a healthy fistula has the same blood flow as the kidneys do. So you've kind of trade the blood flow that used to go to the kidneys that, to get uh, thrown into the fistula. And then he uh, does some sleight of hands. He says that uh, uh, milliliters of perfusion per 100 grams organ weight was four times the liver and that of exercising muscle and eight times coronary blood flow. The organ that he did not want to compare the kidneys to was lungs, right? The, lung, the lungs would beat the kidneys, right? I want to comment on this uh, cardiac output thing. It's kind of interesting because why do the kidneys get so much blood? You know, why do they have 20% of the cardiac output when they represent 
you know, 5% or whatever the body weight. Is it because they need all that oxygen or do they need all that flow? Didn't we talk about last month that that amount of flow was required to make? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was implying last time is that it's it's not that efficient of an organ because it requires a lot of blood processing, but it's not about oxygen because even though it gets all this blood, it doesn't consume 20% of the oxygen. In fact, it consumes about 10 to 15% of the, it extracts about 10 to 15% of the oxygen where your average organ extracts about 50% of the oxygen. So it really is about providing a massive amount of uh, blood to process not pretty for water or salt for that matter. You could get rid of salt with very little filtration, but probably mostly urea and other nitrogen-based products. One of the things that kept coming up to me as I was reading this chapter was how many of the things that I just sort of say are incorrect. (laughs) One of those being, I always go, oh, well, you know, just kind of glibly when people get ATN, I go, you know, the kidneys are so sensitive to hypoperfusion. They get all this, most of your cardiac output goes to them and therefore they're so sensitive. And really that's not really a great excuse for, it's just more complex than that. And I say that all the time, but it's one of those things I say, and I'm like, that's probably oversimplifying it really. When we get into the anatomy of that, we'll get into why the tubules are so sensitive to hypoxia. It's not so much in this chapter, but the, I mean, that that's a definite more to come. It's surprising looking back now that this is really the only glomerulus chapter and it doesn't even get a whole chapter. It gets half a chapter. And so like given all the time we spend on gloms and all the basic science we know about gloms, like this is really like the first 10 pages is where the meat of that's going to be. And so we really got to like milk this for all it's worth. <laughs> it's the Rodney Dangerfield of the kidney. I'm going to have nothing to add for the remaining 900 pages this book unless we spend like at least two hours here. I'm just trying to put that. That's so cute. And I, here I am wishing that we can move on. <laughs> Faster we get past the gloms, the better. Ugh. To Anna's point, like I, I actually honestly feel that this is a good way to think about it, that just internalizing, just accepting the fact that the kidney is so vascular, it could really explain why we see so much pre-renal AKI and, and can really in any sort of uh, hypotensive state, whether it's cirrhosis or heart failure, it's, it's common to see AKI. And I actually, I say the same thing to med students, but I, I, I think it really helps to just remember this point about how vascular vascular it is. So any drop in, in perfusion of any changes to what the kidney is used to will make the kidney freak out. And and we'll talk about this more in the second half or next episode, but the fact that the two capillary beds are in series, right? Your, your second capillary bed is going to get a lot less pressure and a lot less oxygen. And so I just kind of market it when I'm teaching students, like the paratubular capillaries and paratubular cells are working at this incredibly low oxygen tension. And in fact, they're very hardy to start with. They're starting with the bare bones of least scraps of any cell in the body and the fact that they can work regularly is amazing so the fact that they just take a little break during atn but give them give them a break here people so you know so after you have this uh, glomerular tuft blood flows around the paratubular capillaries and one of the things that he mentions that i had no idea it doesn't the paratubular capillaries are not necessarily from that parent nephron that they can kind of cross over from nephron to nephron that was kind of wild and unexpected very. You'd think like, how embryologically did that happen? Or that, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't happen. believe anything happens. I think everything happened for a reason. So, but I can't imagine why that's the case. Why it would want to mix them up? Oh, honestly, that sounded more reassuring. It seemed like the task of wiring one million sets of nephrons and one million sets of blood vessels together would be really hard. So the fact that they kind of crossed over was like, oh, thank God that we don't have to correspond that. It's stuff. close. It's close enough. Yeah, yeah. it's good. <laughs> and then he says the renal circulation affects urine formation in the following ways, and there are only three. 
One, the rate of glomerular filtration is an important determinant of solute and water excretion. And I have a comment in pen. I have no, N-O with an explanation point. Because like your GFR can go from 100 to 10 and you can stay in absolute sodium and water balance, right? Like you can have a 10-fold change. <laughs> you can have a 10-fold change in GFR and you can still remain in balance. Like it just seems actually really the R squared on that is very low. Well, not right away, though. I mean, if you have a sudden dramatic decline in GFR, then that's not the case. It would only be if you slowly moved in that direction. I just want to say, take some serious cojones to write in this book with a pen. That feels like a level of like gumption that I just don't have. You can see that I'm writing in a pencil because oh, I just don't feel... you wrote in the book with pen. And that just seems like... that's. That's like sacrilege. Like, I feel like you have to, like, take that book to the synagogue and, like, bury it when you're done. Like, it's just not okay to It goes it. with you, actually. No, it I goes with you the for the afterlife. At least I can erase mine, you know, at some point in the future. I did okay. always call this the Bub Bible. The big one. And the little one I called Bud Light. <laughs> like so. Oh, my God. That's the <laughs> Melody. So, to your point, Josh, to treasure it. <laughs> So what do you so what do you think he means by that then? I mean, I, I I get your point, Joel. I mean, what do you think he's he's meaning to say? The rate of glomerular filtration is an important determinant of solid and water excretion. You know, and I think that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time trying to emphasize that when patients are you know have a stable creatinine of five, they're still getting rid of their daily solute load. They're fine, right? I mean, they're not fine. Clearly, they're very sick, but. They can be in solute balance and they can be in water balance. That's the essence of clearance is that you, That's you, achieve, clearance. That's you, right. you achieve a new steady state at a higher level of something. But not at every salt and water intake. I mean, patients who have greatly reduced renal function may have a much harder time handling a water load or a solute load. And so in, you know, in moderation, they may be able to remain in steady state. But if they challenge it, they may be less, you know, able to adapt as you might be. Well, it kind of depends what you're talking about, because if it's urea, you double your protein intake, you'll double your BUN, and it's, that's, you, you will, and assuming you don't change your fractional excretion of urea, your reabsorption, you'll, you'll get rid of your daily, your output, you'll just live at a higher urea, and the same thing's true of creatinine. Salt's a little kind of funny. I never understood, quite frankly, why we have edema. When you think about how much sodium we filter a day, even with a GFR of 10 mLs a minute, that's a 1,400 milliequivalents. Roger bungles the math here, but his point is well taken, and I wanted to fix this. 10 milliliters per minute of GFR times a sodium concentration of 140, so that's 0.01 liters times 140 milliequivalents per liter times 1,440 minutes in a day comes out to roughly 2,000 milliequivalents of sodium filtered, which is equivalent to 46 grams of sodium filtered every day at a GFR of 10 milliliters per minute. You know, all it would, you know, what's your average sodium intake a day? Three grams, 150 milliequivalents? No, you know, I why think that's it? optimistic. Five grams. Yeah, you're not well, hanging uh, out with your patients. Yeah. Well, you know, no. my point that's though, all you have to wait, do, wait, wait. Well, my point is all you have to do is every now and then let a sodium go by. You don't have to reabsorb it all. And why do we have edema when people have a creatinine? You know, why do, why do diabetics have edema when they've got a creatinine of two? It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it's not a GFR issue is my point. 
because they're filtering so much sodium during the day. All they have to do is let one go every now and then, and they wouldn't have edema. Well, I know we'll get to that when we get to proteinuria. I was going to say, acids. don't worry, Melanie's going to teach us. So, Joe, <laughs> you know, when I read that sentence, I, I, I mean, I hear what you're, what you're saying, uh, because we typically think about the tubules being in charge of controlling water and sodium, not, not the GFR. But I guess, ultimately, they depend on GFR. If GFR turns to zero... You know, you have no ability to handle any any solids in water. That's what I kind of skipped to that sentence, but I hear you, what you're trying to say. I, I agree with like your sentiment. That's not what we think about when we think about solids and water uh, conservation. Excellent. So of those, of the the three things. So the second one is peritubular capillaries in the cortex reser- return reabsorb solutes and water to the systemic circulation and can modulate the degree of proximal tubular reabsorption secretion. More in chapter three. And then the vasorecta capillaries in the medulla return reabsorbed salt and water to the systemic circulation and participate in the countercurrent mechanism, permitting the conservation of water by the excretion of hyperosmotic urine. That's the renal circulation of three things. One, GFR. Two, paratubular capillaries returning solute back to circulation. And three, the vasorecta participating in the you know, doing the same thing as the paratubular plus participating to this countercurrent exchange and allowing us to concentrate urine. It could easily be a fourth, and that is that the, the kidneys dilute. They have a diluting yeah. segment to excrete a water load. It's not only concentration, and, and that's as, probably as important as three for people like me that drink 40 of these a day. Okay. Uh, just since it's a podcast, he held up a bottle of bourbon. Okay. 40 <laughs> bottles of bourbon a day. It was Diet Coke <laughs> with lots of caffeine. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, my as my daughter says, hydrate or dihydrate. That, we're done with the, the vasculature. On to the glomerular anatomy and function. The structure, apparently, the glomerulus is a tuft of capillaries. It is enclosed in a capsule of epithelial cells. This is called Bowman's capsule. And the epithelial cells of Bowman's capsule are continuous with the epithelial cells of the proximal tubule. That as you move more proximal than the proximal tubule, you end up in the glomerulus. Then he goes on from there into the filtration barrier. Anybody, any comments on the structure of Bowman's capsule and the glomerular tuft? I mean, just reminding folks that epithelial cell on a vascular tuft is called a podocyte, and those words are interchangeable. Uh, I feel like I get a lot of confusion between people. And then if you've never seen an electron micrograph of a podocyte, you're like cheating yourself of one of the world's great beautiful things to look at. Nothing was better for stimulating interest in renal physiology than renaming the renal epithelial cell the podocyte, right? This was a huge huge move. Great move there, right? Marketing was excellent there. I think if they were hand processes, it'd be so creepy. (laughs) Hand processes, ooh. (laughs) I just like his parietal and visceral because it, it, it mimics the belly and that's well, it follows anatomy, even in the plura, right, in the lungs. And, and I, I just want to say, like, I really enjoyed reading this part because I think that it's also a thing of beauty, the fact that it's Bowman's capsule. Then it, it's just all encapsulated, like uh, like embryology is just so amazing, the way this all developed from a single layer. You know, this this I feel like this should be bookmarked because we will come back to this when there we talk about glomerular diseases and which oh, side. Oh, oh no, Letty. but but we, we don't. There are no glomerular diseases. <laughs> no, in this no, book. no, I think you misunderstand right. the point of this book. No, no, I know, but I'm just saying that <laughs> for the Bud Light book yeah. for our learners, our learners that like come back to this part. To this is just like the building block. Yeah. Yeah, when I've had a chance to go through this book with with fellows, like George was saying uh, about 
how little is spent on glomerulars in this book. I, I tell it, guys, this book is not about the glomps. So it's not, it's not in, uh, there's so much, so much things that, you know, when uh, we're thinking about things that are not in this chapter, there are so many things about the glomerulus that are not in this chapter, but he does cover the essentials. I guess we already mentioned that we have to call epithelial cells visceral for the podocytes and parietal for those who outline the Boltzmann. So we have to make that distinction because it has implications in disease. And then he talks about how a mesangial cell anchors uh, the whole tuft and the endothelial cells. And he goes on to describe the glomerular filtration barrier. He touches a little bit on also extra glomerular mesangial cells, which I, I just like those cells because they're just the most neglected cells probably in the kidney. You know, who, who knows, who cares about the extra glomerular mesangial cells? Uh, but he does have a, a nice paragraph on this chapter where he talks about, he actually cites work from, from Stuart Shanklin and, and Bill Kauser about how uh, these cells, uh, if you get an, an animal model and you injure them with an antibody that attacks mesangial cells, you essentially... Why don't keep your powder dry? We're going to get to this. Let's, let's, let's okay. walk through that. All right. Let's, we're going to get there. But, so the next thing going back talks, to the beautiful podocytes please. for one more second. Yeah, one more time. Tell Ignore me, tell these me extra glomerular whatever they are that JC is talking about. I, I think it, it's a useful historical reflection on the book that a lot of the advances that we think about in glomerular disease happened since the publication of this book. So PLA2R happened since this book, APOL1 happened since this book, all of the genetic causes of FSGS that we know about happened since this book, and all of the lupus stuff that you think about, I mean, a large chunk of that is is also since this book. So I think historically, like, we look to this book as like, this is the latest edition of this textbook, this is what we're going on. But remembering that stuff happens in 20 years, and despite the rep for our field as one with the lack of innovation, this is a place where we actually have gotten a lot of understanding in the last 10, 20 years. Well, and I think that's a great way to like correct that reputation for, oh, nothing's happened in nephrology. Well, pick up a 20-year-old textbook and read it and you start to see how much has happened, right? Like that that's where the, the rubber meets the road on those types of those types Hey, Josh, of I got a question for you. You know, the, the picture here, figure 2-2 of the glomerulus, it really shows the glomerular capillary tuft as, a, as kind of a web. Do we know how much of a web it is? Or it's not one long tube, right? Do we know? Because that means that some of the blood could go from the afferent to the efferent by bypassing it. And some of it could go really long through it before it gets through there. Do we know much about that? That's a really good question. I feel like I'm being put on the spot here, but I don't know well, the you're answer the glom to your guy. question. You're the, you're, you're the glom guy. Podocyte. Podocyte <laughs> structure biology is my very oh, okay. specific niche. So once you cross the, the GBM, uh, I'm like way out of my league. I just saw a lovely um, physiology paper, I can pull it out for the notes if you want, that describes uh, after the afferent arterial, there are sort of, they call them conduits, so certain capillaries that are then going to branch into others. And so they call those bigger ones conduits that go in, so conduit arterioles that then branch into smaller capillaries within the glomerular tuft and then converge on conduit, I guess, efferent arterial vessels before leaving the glom. You think that would be an interesting target for regulation of blood flow, right? I mean, we all think about blood flow into and out of systems, like we think of fistula blood flow. Uh, and if each glomerus is like a little tiny fistula and you have a lot of an accessory pathway, um, you could really change the amount of filtration you get. So it, it's a really interesting question. And yeah, I'm just not well-versed enough to know. So I, I'm looking forward to the article Melanie sends us. So then he talks about the um, filtration barrier. 
And there were three uh, components to the filtration barrier. You have the endothelial cell, basement membrane, and epithelial cell. And then you had the um, basement membrane, which is produced both by the endothelial cells and the podocytes, formed primarily by uh, type 4 collagen. And then he briefly mentions that uh, abnormalities in type 4 collagen cause Alport's disease, and the gene coding for the alpha-5 chain is the culprit there, gene Cole4A5, if you are following along at home. I actually thought it was really interesting that the endothelial cells and the um, podocytes both secrete glomerular basement membrane. I never thought about where the glomerular basement membrane comes from. So I wanted to chime in for a sec on this too, because I found a really neat paper that I want to add to the notes here. Um, there's a 2013 super resolution microscopy paper where they look at the architecture of the basement membrane and which cells make which stuff. And so what's cool about this, is they use a technique called storm. That's like a really fancy uh, fluorescent microscopy technique that you can use to look at like tens of nanometer resolution to see where molecules are. And they actually see that each layer, so the podocyte layer lays down a layer of laminins and the endothelial cell lays down a layer of laminins. And then there's like a collagen for like middle in the sandwich. They can actually tell the difference between. And if you look at their images of what the images look like before they use this fancy technique and the images look like after, the before images are like, there's all this stuff in this GBM. We don't really know where it is. And the after images are like, there are very clearly two layers here. And we can really tell which one's coming from where. And that's what's so cool too, when you think about our understanding of the filtration barrier over time, just thinking about, you know, just the fact that the glomerular basement membrane is this really complex structure. And to us, it's just like, well, it's kind of just goo, you know, like it's negatively charged goop. Well, yeah. And then you think about it, like it is a negatively charged goop. It's not static. It's, uh, you know, for instance, membranous, you get these deposits and they, they're deposited on the top and then... Then basement membrane comes around. Where is that coming from? You know, and then it engulfs it, and then eventually the deposits get absorbed. So it's it's not you know I'm not sure how all that's done, but it's not just a, a, a goop. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to, to to change like that. I mean, he definitely talks about heparin sulfate, but I think there's increasing research in the role of the glycocalyx in terms of like proteinuria and and different therapies involved in that, and aldosterone and how it regulates that and its response to shear stress. And so I think that's something that's definitely. So let's just rewind and let's, let's get 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 right oriented. So the glycocalyx is going to be part of the endothelium. Yeah, and it's basically secreted by. And the endothelium, different proteins that kind of just get stuck in this little barrier layer. So like heparin sulfate is actually kind of like a free floating protein that's kind of like stuck to the glycocalyx through different like other glycoproteins. And so in response to shear stress, then that can sometimes get denuded almost. And then that kind of opens up the fenestrated pores to to proteins being able to pass through because it, the heparin sulfate is that negative charge. And so it's lost that negative charge. So I think there's a growing body of research in this area. And so I think it's something really interesting that's going to, we're going to see more and more. Right. So the, the role of the glycocalyx has been really critical in a lot of the capillary beds, usually outside of the kidney in regards to how people respond to fluids and that it really has rechanged our understanding of the Starling's law. Though it's interesting, most of those, most of those papers say not in the <laughs> Kidney, though, that all the stuff that governs how these different capillary beds respond, primarily they're talking about albumin and fusions. And, you know, the rules we learned in medical school about how effective albumin should be at pulling fluid back from the interstitium, it just doesn't work. And a lot of it is this develop this understanding of the glycocalyx rewriting the rules of, of uh, Starling's law. But most of those papers said, yeah, but 
Kidney's different. Kidney has these fenestrated endothelium. They behave differently. But uh, Amy's pointed out that they're, they're not right, completely irrelevant exactly. here either. No, it's, a, it's a very important point, Amy, because obviously the chapter doesn't talk about it, so we have to mention it. And because any if you open a review article in 2020 that talks about a glomerular filtration barrier, they'll have a cartoon of the podocyte layer followed by the glomerular basement membrane, followed by the endothelial cells with the fenestrations, followed by the this layer of glycocalyx, which could be seen as an outline of protein with carbohydrate uh, motifs attached to it. And what is interesting about this, I, I spent some time doing a little bit of podocyte research and reading a lot of the literature. It was initially thought that the, the whole negative charge of the glomerular filtration barrier is brought in by the glomerular basement membrane. And then subsequently, some work showing that, no, it's actually protocalyxin in the protocyte body that is an anionic protein that gives the negative charge. And now all the glycocalyx uh, investigators are saying, no, you guys are wrong. It's the glycocalyx. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's probably all three. You know, I, I don't think it's the and same battle. you really want to be contrarian about this. So two weeks ago in, uh, in Nature Reviews Nephrology, uh, Rachel Lennon's group published a review uh, and my favorite sentence is, together these findings suggest that the role of charge selectivity in the glomerular filter is likely to be minor. Uh, so they really don't even think that the charge selectivity is even like a key property of the glom at all. Uh, yes. so and that's actually a great entry because that's the very next section is size and charge selectivity. Nephrologists love talking about charge and size selectivity. What, just give us the 30,000 foot view of that, Josh. What, what, what are we talking about? Sure. So, so the idea is that from going from the blood space into the primary urine space, you got to pass through all these different layers of endothelial cell, GBM, and podocyte. And that by going through those layers, you keep big molecules in the blood and you keep particularly, the traditional view has been negatively charged molecules in the blood. That there's something about those three layers filtering that keeps molecules with those properties in the blood space and out of the urine space. And the way that this works is... As the size of the molecule reaches kind of the limits of the pores, the charge becomes more and more important. Is that right? Though, so we're not this this charge selectivity has nothing to do with phosphorus and chloride. Those pass through without any problem. Correct. So it's really for molecules of like that kind of middle size, like small to middle size protein size. You can see in Figure Two Three. This is like a classic 1970s physiology paper using different dextrans looking at how these differently charged dextran sugar molecules pass through and cationic dextran sugar molecules pass through really easily, even at bigger radiuses, bigger sizes, anionic or negatively charged dextran sugars pass through much more difficultly and are, difficultly and are, and are really not permitted through the glomerular filtration barrier. And of course, albumin is negatively charged. And so with its size, it would get through fairly easily. Classic teaching is that it's 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 small enough to get through, except its charge repels it. Most immunoglobulins are positively charged, but I suppose which would think that would augment their excretion, except they're probably way too big to be in the realm of this discussion. The main thing that kept coming back to my mind when I was reading this part of the chapter is that just how much these concepts then are applied to how dialysis filter membranes were developed. You know, always thinking about the pore size, and I mean, obviously we can't develop like a charge, but uh, whenever anybody asks things like, "Oh, is this medication removed?" or is that it always comes back to this principle. And this is why I think this is so important to always keep in the back of your mind because 
when people are thinking like, well, what's going to get removed with dialysis or is this, uh, you know, or, or do we need to give another dose after dialysis? It's, it's basically referring back to this idea. So how, how permeable is a dialysis membrane compared to the glomerulus? Do, you know, we don't lose much albumin at all. We don't lose any immunoglobulin, much to the hematologist's chagrin. We don't lose beta two microglobulin, which is a problem. And we don't even and we don't even lose some molecules that we really do want to. And get that's rid of. like fifteen thousand or something. It's a pretty small molecule in the realm of things. I, I think the the if you look at the um, like the package insert of the dialyzer, uh, it says some. It's around fifteen to seventeen thousand. The pore size is the cutoff. Yeah, it's the cutoff. So dead on these high cutoff dialyzers, that's going to be significantly higher, right? Like it's, it's like a lot higher. Like is it. Way higher. Those are up to 50, 60. These, you have to give albumin infusions while these people are getting dialysis because you get significant hypotension. Yeah. You get hypotension from the loss of albumin. Interesting. Okay. So just just to (laughs) clarify, this is a technology that is available but not widely used. They're called high cutoff dialyzers. They're mainly used in patients with multiple myeloma to try to cut down uh, immunoglobulin load uh, the data, not very compelling that I've seen. It doesn't seem to be a very effective strategy. As most things, there's one study that says it works and one study says it doesn't work. And so you're kind of yeah. left with, but it's it's like doing phoresis for, for multiple myeloma, except phoresis is a, is a single, you know, two or three plasma volumes. But if you just keep dialyzing the blood over and over again and get rid of these molecules, it's a great idea. It's just hasn't seemed to bear itself out you know, for various reasons. Yeah. In the end, multiple myeloma is a cancer and you need to treat the cancer and not just remove the product of the cancer. And the new drugs, uh, I think a lot of the research came before some of these, the proteasome inhibitors were out and they work so quickly that that may be why it fails because the drugs are so good now that it will decrease your light chain load very, very quickly. And it it may, the effect of uh, removing them extracorporeally may just be insignificant. So I know Anna prepared something about uh, size selectivity or charge selectivity. I had to read back a long way to kind of figure out why it is that we think the way we think about the filtration barrier. So sort of starting from what Josh said, this figure two, three, if you're reading along, um, it's actually a composite of two different studies that were done, which I also didn't know that Dr. Glasscock and Barry Brenner were authors on this study that um, is in figure that's referenced in figure two, three. So I thought that was really cool. But if you actually look and I, there's actually a second figure that was published in this, in the study in 1977, where the, the rats were induced, basically they had a, an anti-glomerular basement membrane um, antibody injected that destroys the negative charge of the glomerular basement membrane. And those mice, um, number one, it it removed, if you look at that, um, at the graph, the difference between the anionic and cationic lines is removed and essentially is just three lines that are superimposed over the neutral uh, figure, which is really interesting. It just shows that destroying that negative charge of the glomerular basement membrane does sort of negate the effect of the charge of uh, particles that are trying to move through. And then... um, and it also resulted in in rats the equivalent of 10 times as much proteinuria as the rats that had not had that glomerular basement membrane antibody injected, which I thought was really interesting. So removing removing this charge selectivity mm-hmm. resulted in massive proteinuria. Correct. The equivalent in mice was like, you know, 200 milligrams a day or something, but it was it was it was 10 times as as much protein as they had prior to the injection. They called it nephrotoxic serum nephritis rats, which isn't a term I was familiar with. That was the basis for that study. But I, th- I thought was really interesting too was um, that in the early 2000s, like 2007 era, there was a big debate about whether 
the filtration barrier for albumin and that size protein is in fact what keeps albumin out of the urine at all and whether or not it's actually just that normal kidneys do filter lots and lots of albumin and what keeps it out of the urine is that it's resorbed in the proximal tubule just like everything else. And I wasn't aware that that was even ever a thought. But as I read back through these studies, even at the early, early times of micropuncture studies in the in the 20s and 30s and 40s, there was suggestion that that was a possibility. And so it's not something I'd ever even considered because I was taught in medical school, you know, just one driver's license renewal ago that no albumin is filtered. And that was just dogma. And I never questioned it. There was a group in the in 2007 that had used fluorescent labeling of albumin to show if you use a uh, fluorescently labeled albumin and, and and use microscopy to in real time look at the transit of that albumin, that it did appear based on their studies that albumin was massively uh, filtered and then resorbed in the proximal tubule and that they postulated that it was in fact normal to excrete nephrotic range amounts of protein and then resorb it. And that the, the problem with kidneys that have that wind up making urine that has nephrotic range protein is actually just that the proximal tubules don't resorb it the way they should. There were all these debate articles in Jason, and uh, there was a, a paper around the same time that showed that destroying the heparin sulfate part of the glycocalyx result didn't result in albuminuria, which also countered that um, hypo- you know, I guess hypothesis that that the filtration barrier is the glomerular basement membrane. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, and, and I am not honestly aware of to what extent that's still up for debate. It's been out there for a while, and it, it hasn't grown to the degree you think it would. But boy, they sure make a convincing. They can make a pretty convincing case when you when you read these papers. Yeah, um, but there were all kinds of there. There were three. Jason published a three part series about the debate uh, where people kind of systematically dismantled how these micropuncture studies in the twenties could have been not incorrect in their findings, but just we didn't understand them fully, and, and so that could still be the case. One of the arguments for it, I, Wayne Compter was did a lot of this work, and he spent some time at Rush years ago, maybe when I was a fellow or an early attending, but his argument would be, was that you find all these uh, albumin um, fragments in the urine, and the only way they could ever have gotten there is from filtered albumin, and so indirectly, that was the way he kind of implied it, uh, that it was the case. I mean, you know, it's it's such a crazy paradigm to think it's one or the other. It's it. I, I don't even know how to even live with one or the other because, you know, we've got all this pathologic, you know, podocyte damage that's shown in proteinuria, and it, it just feels like that has to be the, the the cause. And how if it's just if it's purely a proximal tubular disease, why do we see all this podocyte uh, abnormalities that are going on? And you know, think about. When you see someone with massive proteinuria, you can see a lot of protein reabsorption droplets in their proximal tubule. Why don't we see that all the time then if you're you're constantly reabsorbing protein? You know, there's so many things that go against it. But, you know, as as I'm reading these articles, it kind of reminds me of uh, that podcast serial. The very first one was about that high school murder uh, in Maryland. And, you know, you go to episode one and you think there's no way he did it. Then you episode two, you think, oh, he absolutely did it. And episode three, there's no way he did it. And then by the time you're done, you have absolutely no idea what it was. And it kind of reminds me of that. It's just like the last time I, the last paragraph I read, I'm convinced that that's what's going on. There was actually a study done. Um, it was published in uh, Journal of Physiology, American Journal of Physiology, just a few years after the Russo that actually sort of repeated the study. Um, not exactly, but essentially did a very similar set of experiments to determine a sieving coefficient. and So Anna mentions the sieving coefficient 
And I just want to make sure that that's clearly defined. The sieving coefficient is the ratio of solute in the filtrate compared to the plasma. So a good example of a low sieving coefficient would be albumin blocked from going through the filtration barrier. So there's a high concentration of albumin in the plasma and essentially none in the filtrate. So that has a very low sieving coefficient. Whereas sodium has a sieving coefficient of one. The concentration in the plasma is equivalent to its concentration in the filtrate. There's no barrier to the transmission of sodium. So that's what all the sieving coefficient is pointed out a lot of the reasons why the sieving coefficient appeared to be so high in that 2007 paper and didn't have similar results, did have a, nor a sieving coefficient that was more similar to what had been thought for a long time. But I, but I was really fascinated that, that when I went back to papers in the 20s, I mean, these were written like by hand and people were saying, well, you know, it's either that it's that it's not, you know, that it that it's removed by the glomerulus or that the proximal tubule resorbs it. And I was like, oh, I thought this was some new debate. It was people were even considering this in the 20s. I think if we could we could uh, try to kind of summarize this controversy to kind of what we need to take out of in this chapter is that that was a very interesting time because it brought up, it shook some essential fundamental uh, concept in, in infiltration. And the lines of evidence that support the sieving coefficient for albumin being what it is, very low, is like Roger was saying, it's based on evidence of podocyte genetic diseases, micropuncture studies for decades, and we can go on and on the multiple lines of evidence against a single technique based on a fluorescent label tag and using confocal microscopy to measure the sieving coefficient of albumin. And that's when all the criticism, when you gotta go back to your technique, and, I, and, and that's what it happened. That's what happened. Went back to the technique, identified it was probably a flaw in the way they were measuring the sieving coefficient. But the nice thing about this whole turmoil is that we started thinking about, oh, what is this megalin-cubulin complex? And we're going to probably talk about more in the proximal tubule, but I think it raised awareness of this reuptake of filter protein, because it still happens. It does happen. It's just not to the magnitude that it was being proposed. I think that's a pretty good summary. Does anybody else want to weigh in on, on thoughts that they were burning to talk about this? I just wanted to add one thing, not exactly about albumin, but I wanted to make sure that we were clear. Lots of people talked about the GBM as a sort of a lattice or pores, and, and Bud even refers to there being tunnels through the GBM. And I think now uh, most people agree that uh, you, you called it goop and or that it's more of a gel and that things may sort of diffuse through the GBM. And one of the people who put that forward, um, which I think is a kind of cool correlate, I always love when people from other fields apply their expertise to think about questions, was um, Nobel laureate Oliver Smithies, who won the Nobel Prize, I think, for work essentially on developing knockout um, mice and others, but also did a lot of important work on gel electrophoresis and felt that the GBM is sort of like that with charge and size selectivity as it sort of moves through uh, the GBM. And I liked that analogy a lot. Anybody else have any other thoughts on this? Well, I guess I, just one thing on the charge selectivity that uh, was discussed a little bit earlier. Josh pointed out to figure two, two, three, and figure two, four. Yeah, I want to talk about two, four. Yeah, yes. figure two, four is a little bit uh, perhaps counterintuitive when you first look at it because it shows that uh, filtration of dextrans 
in uh, individuals with minimal change glomerulopathy is actually uh, lesser than controls. So you would think that they have they should have leaky gloms and they should be filtering more, and they don't. Um, and then go on figure panel B shows that it only happens when you get to the larger pores of the 70 angstroms. That's when you start seeing that. And they actually speculate in this particular paper that it's not just a size, it should be the charge okay, so selectivity. Re, re, just rewind, just let's make it simpler. So the panel B shows, this is in focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, is that the FSGS at low molecular, at low molecular radius has less lower sieving coefficient than normals. And that when you get to the large size, that's when they're going to start leaking the protein and that has greater sieving coefficients. Is that a, a yes. good summary there? Yeah, that is correct. And, and they did show when uh, the minimal change disease, which is panel A. But before we get, and, and, and before we get to panel A, so then the explanation for that is that the reason it has lower filtration of the smaller molecules is just this is a disease glomerulus and it has less surface area and that's what's going on there. And then when you get to the large molecules, that's when the defects that make up the focal segmental glomerulosis that are focal part of the disease allows those proteins to pass through. Panel A is a similar experiment, but it's done in patients with minimal change disease. In this case, they show that uniformly going from 28 Armstrongs of a dextran radius all the way to the 60 or 70, at all times, there was less passage of this dextran in the patients with minimal change disease, which you would think, how is that so? These patients have leaky glom, they should be filtering more. And this is work from Tony Wash and Brian Myers. I was a fellow at Emory when he was doing some of this interesting work. He was doing it at that time in sickle cellulomyelopathy. So I remember he explaining me some of these experiments. And he actually stated that Yes, in minimal change disease, there's actually high pore filtration. People talk about patients with minimal change disease getting AKI from ATN, and he's argument that there's a little bit of a hypofiltration because this massive food process effacement can lead to less passage of dextrans. But what is important is that in this graph, the, they, I don't think they comment in this group or in the figure legend that the conclusion was that it may not just be all about size. It should be also something else, perhaps charge. And this, 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 the work that generated this figure was in 1991. And of course, 1993, two years later, they did publish a JCI paper showing that if you take the dextran of the same size, but yet is an, an ionic dextran, a negatively charged dextran, that's when you see that the minimal change disease patients have a greater passage of those molecules. Okay, so further evidence of the importance of charge selectivity here in this work with minimal change disease. Yes, although the recent review article that Josh quoted apparently is not in agreement. Thanks with a that. lot, Josh. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Josh. So, so I think one thing that was interesting about the about the evidence for this is that the idea is that dextrans are long sugar molecules that are much more flexible than proteins, and so they may have different properties of fitting through pores in a way that globular, more solid proteins don't. And so our assumptions on what the shape of a dextran is as it goes through a pore might not apply to things like albumin as we have traditionally thought of them. That is correct. That's why people have tried to replicate these studies using phycols, which are more spheric molecules, and they have come up with pretty similar 
uh, observations. Um, so going back to the size selectivity issue that we were talking about, I think I wanted to build on the points that Anna and Melanie had both raised. Uh, and I actually came across this paper that I had not seen, but came out in May of this year. Uh, I'm really going to try to not laugh as I tell you that the first author is Linus Butt. Uh, and in the lab of, uh, sorry, in the lab of Thomas Benzing in Cologne. And what they did was really neat. They actually f- describe a mechanism for how podocyte effacement leads to albumin passing through the GBM. And the key idea is that the, the GBM is under uh, a, a stretching force from blood flow. And what the role of the podocyte is, is to squish it back in so that the, pod- so the GBM layer is a nice thick layer. And if you have any disruption to the podocyte-podocyte connections, if you have any disruption to the podocyte cytoskeleton, then the podocytes kind of stretch out and that the hemodynamic forces stretch the GBM out, which takes it from being a nice thick layer to being a much thinner layer that allows albumin molecules to pass from the blood space into the primary urine space. And that that difference between an inward pushing force of podocytes and healthy kidney versus a tension force in diseased, effaced podocyte diseases seems like a really important concept that really helps figure out the idea of size selectivity in healthy kidney and why that starts to fail in disease states. That's really interesting. I always wondered how to put together in my mind this, this effacement would be more permeable when there's, you know, completely covering the area. And it, it, you're I saying think the idea is issue. that the slit diaphragms, which we've traditionally thought of as part of that size selectivity, may not actually be there for size. They may be a structural reinforcing role so that podocytes can kind of sink their fingers in to the GBM and push it inwards and create a different direction for force that allows for albumin to remain inside the blood vessel. Am I the only one that thinks of the heparin proteoglycans as being like an agarose gel? Like the size selectivity just makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, things will just take a lot longer. So if you thin out the gel, they're going to get there faster. No. But when we look at glomerular basement membranes on EM, the thinner ones, they block proteins just fine. Couple of red cells get through, and it's the thicker ones in like diabetes that the protein just. And I think that's the difference through. between healthy organized GBM and unhealthy layered on reactive kind of GBM. And I think building on the point that that, that Anna raised, I you know everything in my world I feel like revolves around COVID at this point. But the idea of having like a mask that's over your mouth, and if you just stretch it thinner, lots more stuff gets through. If you're wearing a, a regular mask versus a neck gaiter that you stretch, stuff's going to get through in a way that it really shouldn't. Uh, and I think that's kind of the analogy that works here. Yeah, I think it's excellent. Uh, I, I haven't heard that uh, possibly before, Josh. Thanks for sharing it uh, because it kind of speaks for this cytoskeletal octopus that the podocyte is and kind of makes sense that it may not be about the thickness of the GBM, is but about the tension and the hydraulic pressure that is, is lost. But I'm glad Roger has had these thoughts of not understanding a face me because I know you are a big glom person and I have I continue to struggle with this and and you probably know that actually in this chapter there's a, set, a sentence talking about podocyte detachment and Wilhelm Chris has written all about a lot about this that is all about this denuded or naked gaps in the GBM that is where the podocytes detach and that's where the protein goes across. And, you know, when we do biopsy conference and they show us uh, the electromicroscopy images, I never see <laughs> naked GBMs. I would just don't. Tell me a nephropathologist that reads to you, oh, yeah, they, by the way, they were naked GBMs in the biopsy. 
Uh, what is interesting, I actually found a, a paper where they try to quantify this in diabetic nephro- uh, kidneys, and they found that in a normal kidney, the areas of naked GBM is about 0.3% in a normal kidney. And that goes up to 1.4% in a patient with nephrotic proteinuria and diabetes. That is 50 times increase. But again, I, I keep looking at scanning electromicroscopy pictures, and it's just, you see the capillary tufts completely covered by the protocyte, and it's just hard to imagine that those gaps exist and the protein goes across. So maybe what Josh is talking about is the protocyte is still there, but it's, it's sort of a fluffy structure that is no longer containing the filtration of albumin. Melanie? I just want to add, I know you guys love thinking of the octopus as the sort of the mascot for glomeruli, but Helmut Renke always compares the podocytes to flying buttresses like on Notre Dame and how they stand out and hold the, the uh, glomerular capillary open. And that works for me as well. But I think you've hit on something with minimal change disease. You know, the podocytes have to have this incredible architecture in order to cover the whole glomerular capillary. And when they simplify, they can't cover the whole thing. And although we think about the effaced foot processes, there are areas that are naked. And while you, you know, the glomerular capillary pressure has to increase in order to maintain filtration. And then in those naked spots, there can be, you know, significant losses, just like with uh, diabetes, when the pressure there too is higher in the glomerular capillary. And that's when we see albuminuria. So I think what we're at here is glomerular science is way bigger than half of a chapter in a My work here is done. I'm going to call it night, guys. No, and it is a thankless, and we're never going to be able to finish this type of thing. And I think we just need to take a lesson from Bud Rose and just say, hey, there's a barrier here. Albumin and proteins do not get across, and it's complex. Yeah. Does anybody else do this when you're talking to patients, though? In, interdigitate those fingers, show them what it looks like. Like the, the finger the finger thing, and you're going, well, actually, how much time do you have? Because... So he goes on to the other glomerular functions besides the barrier, right? He says there's a synthetic function. We talked about how both the endothelial and epithelial cells produce the GBM. There's a phagocytic function that removes circulating macromolecules that pass through the GBM but can't but get trapped in the sub-epithelial space. And then there's an endocrine function. Oh, does somebody want to make a comment on that? The phagocytic function? That that's very cool, and I didn't know that. Cool function. Okay. The endocrine function, the endothelial cells regulate vascular tone by releasing prostacyclin, endothelin, and nitric oxide. More to come on those later. And then he mentions that there are two mesangial types. You have the intrinsic mesangial cell, with a microfilament similar to smooth muscle, responds to angiotensin II, it regulates the glomerular hemodynamics. It also can release cytokines, can respond to those same cytokines with proliferation. And then there's the circulating macrophages and monocytes, which have the phagocytic functions, and they clear molecules to get through the endothelial wall, but can't get through the GBM. And this was where uh, they had, they, there was the reference to the Shankland information. Is that right? Do you want to yes. bring up what you were talking about there, JC? 
Yeah, very briefly. Yeah, Mesangel Cell was actually it's nice to t- give the historical perspective. They were the center of attention in diabetic nephropathy back in the 80s and 90s until nephrine was cloned and the whole podocyte science sort of exploded in the early 2000s. And when I you read this literature, I'm so, I was surprised when he actually talks about a macrophage and a smooth muscle cell being two completed cells. I always saw a mesangial cell as a cell that has the ability to have those both phenotypes in one cell. But but anyway, um, what he also mentions is this extra glomerular mesangial cells. And the study that was referring that Shanklin did and his group did is they injected uh, a, a, an antibody, it's called anti-thy1 antibody, that you deplete all the mesangial cells in, inside the glomerulus, but it, you leave the extra mesangial glomerular cells intact. And over time, they can tag those cells and track them and see how they repopulate the areas within the glomerulus. They mentioned the ability of these cells to repair injury. And they specifically say that these are not renin-expressing cells, which are, you know, the juxtaglomerular cells uh, uh, that are essentially next to the extraglomerular mesangial cells in the JGA. Uh, But later on, more recently, others have shown that also the renin-expressing cells can actually traffic into the glomerulus and repair. That's a fascinating uh, uh, role of these cells that, you know, we don't talk much about, but maybe we'll use it more in the future. I don't want to pull a, a Kanye West and like, I'm going to let you finish JC, but let's go back and talk about the podocyte one more time. But I kind of want to talk one more time about the podocyte, if that's okay. You don't have to convince me, Josh. I, know. I love the pods. And, and I think one of the coolest <laughs> endocrine functions of the podocyte, I think we have to talk about it for just a second, um, which is the role of the podocyte secreting soluble FLIP1, which is the VEGF receptor molecule. Uh, and so the podocyte actually secretes this molecule countercurrent back toward the endothelial cell to maintain the function of the endothelial cell. And if that secretion stops working, you get massive thrombotic microangiopathy. Um, there's this gorgeous paper from the New England Journal of Medicine from Sue Quaggan's group, which conflict of interest. I love Sue and I was in her lab for a year. Is that is is liking people now a conflict of interest? When did that happen? If, I loving Sue Quaggan is a conflict of interest. I think we all need. That that. <laughs> oh my god! I can't work with but you guys anymore. But she signed anymore. my paycheck, so that's my conflict of interest. <laughs> oh, um, okay, okay. You had to like her. I still do, even though I left. But I, I think blink twice if she was terrible. Let the record show there was no blinking. <laughs> I, I think that what's really neat about this is that there's this mechanism for the podocyte to signal back to the endothelial cell like things are still cool here and also there are diseases that we see come out of this and we see this in patients who get VEGF inhibitors getting thrombotic microangiopathy and it's a result of disrupting this fundamental mechanism well and this is isn't this the mechanism for um uh it's a preeclampsia, pre-eclampsia. is one of the major things preeclampsia thank I'll, you they might be our yeah. cards here so melanie can stop giving me the evil eye here um, but that's that's work that's that's really started right here at Beth Israel Deaconess. That was not the evil eye. I was smiling. <laughs> okay, Melanie, show <laughs> us show us the evil eye. I'll take a screenshot. She can't so be evil. She doesn't like have the evil eye. It's not possible. Just so we identify it, you know. Well, it was the it was actually far shoulder. So uh, Frank Epstein, who is a mentor 
and um, and a great thinker and a nephrologist. Put he, we used to joke if he wanted you to do something, he put his arm on your the far shoulder and reached and pulled you in. And if you didn't like something, it was the near shoulder. And he put his arm around Anand Karamuchi and, and said, you know, V. Jeff, you should look at that in preeclampsia. Wise words. And wow. that's where it started. Excellent. That is uh, the end of the glomerular structure. Um, and we on to the renin and, excuse me, we are onto the renin angiotensin system. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's a lot of years How there. Could it's a you? lot of years. Really, it should uh, not be too much to ask for you to say. This is such a thing. Roger is having chest pain I know, right Roger's now. Faces. It's a total thing. <laughs> so the renin angiotensin system. There's this like one paragraph letter to the editor of JAMA that we've all been looking at and just laughing at for the last couple of hours. And it's really just like renin is the name of the hormone and renin is the thing you find in the stomach of a sheep. Good for cheese, not good for blood. So uh, the afferent arterial contains specialized cells called the juxtaglomerular cells. They produce prorenin, which is cleaved into renin. And then he gives three stimuli for renin release, hypotension, volume depletion, and increase sympathetic activity. And renin then catalyzes the production of angiotensin 1 from angiotensinogen, which is then catalyzed by ACE located in the lung and the endothelial cells and the glomeruli itself. And actually, he spends quite a long time talking about all the different places where angiotensin 1 can be converted to angiotensin 2. And uh, he discusses a lot about local renin production. And that the importance of that allowing patients to have renin-driven hypertension, even in low renin states. Just a quick clarification for terminology. Uh, Juxtaglomerular cells are also called granular cells because they contain those granules with renin. And they are essentially specialized vascular smooth muscle cells of the arteriole. And you can see them um, very prominently in patients with uh, like Barter's and Gittleman's. In Barter and Gittleman syndrome, the salt-wasting nephropathies, these patients have highly activated renin, angiotensin, aldosterone systems. And Roger says you can see them on glomerular biopsies. You can see these granular cells. You see a a markedly uh, expanded JGA. Very cool. Very cool. And then the actions of angiotensin two. Uh, he divides into three categories. One, you have sodium and water retention. Two, you have vasoconstriction. And three, you have regulation of GFR. And so the sodium and water retention is twofold. One, you have direct stimuli of uh, sodium hydrogen exchange in, it sounds like in the S2 segment of the proximal tubule, but importantly, in the proximal tubule, massive reabsorption of sodium in exchange for hydrogen in response to angiotensin 2. And then secondly, angiotensin 2 being a primary stimulus of aldosterone release, which causes sodium reabsorption in the distal nephron. And so you get this kind of one-two punch that angiotensin 2 stimulates sodium reabsorption proximally and stimulates sodium reabsorption distally. There's also the proximal aspect, which I really love to teach, and it has to do with um, angiotensin II. By constricting the efferent arterial, you increase the filtration fraction, which makes sense if you're in a low cardiac output or low renal blood flow state. You want to increase your filtration fraction. 
Roger talks about filtration fraction. Here, Amy defines it. The filtration fraction is the percentage of the renal plasma flow which is filtered through the glomerulus. Mathematically, it's defined as the GFR, which is the amount of fluid filtered from the glomerulus into Bowman's capsule, divided by the renal plasma flow, which is your renal blood flow rate times 1 minus your hematocrit. So if we can recall that our renal blood flow is about 20% of our cardiac output, which is about 1 liter a minute, using a hematocrit of 40%, our estimated renal plasma flow is around 600 mils per minute. If we use a standard GFR of 120 mils per minute, the estimated filtration fraction is about 20%. So the other 80% basically travels out through the efferent arterial into the peritubular capillaries and vasorecta and helps with reabsorption along the tubule, specifically in the proximal tubule. And so filtration fraction can be manipulated through vasoconstriction and vasodilation of either the efferent and or afferent arterial. And an increase in filtration fraction results in a relative increase in peritubular capillary protein and thus increased reabsorption along the proximal tubule. Another way to calculate this would to look at the measured clearance of inulin, which is only filtered, divided by the clearance of paraaminohyperic acid, or PAH, which is an estimate of renal plasma flow. Make more filtrate out of the, the decreased blood flow. So that means by increasing your filtration fraction that the blood that's leaving the glomerulus is now more concentrated from a protein standpoint. That becomes the peritubular capillary and the starling force then pulls and the pressure's lower there too because of the constriction. Distal, the pressure is lower. So both starling forces are going to I- increase your proximal reabsorption. I, I like that much more than the the, the, the transport uh, mechanism because I just I think it's such an incredibly smart thing that's going on. You know, you've got this low blood flow state for whatever reason, and I'm going to make the very most out of it by increasing my filtration fraction. And then not only that, I'm going to get that get it all back in the system as quick as possible. Uh, at the proximal tubule. It achieves two goals. It is maintain GFR one goal and minimize loss of fluid as the second goal. And one change accomplishes both. Yeah, that's incredible. It is very cool. Agreed. And meanwhile, it's a vasoconstrictor, so it's increasing pressure. It's just an amazing system to me. I, I, I would agree with both of you. I don't think we can overstate how important that is. And it'll be so important later when we do metabolic alkalosis and maintenance. I think Aldo is kind of overrated in this system because Ange 2 is so great. And nobody said it tenses your angios. It tenses your angios. Yeah, so it's you a vasoconstrictor. You know, you in other it. words, it tenses your Thank angios. You. Uh, you know, as, as people typically say, yeah, this, this exactly. patient really needs more tensing of his angios. I'm going to use that on rounds. So. Yeah, and so uh, makes it, uh, it's an arteriolar vasoconstriction. He says that it's uh, particularly important in raising the blood pressure and renal artery stenosis. He, he called that out and uh, was super important in maintaining blood pressure with volume depletion or in heart failure and liver disease. And then he mentioned specifically giving ACE inhibitor and cirrhosis can cause profound drops in blood pressure. I I have not seen that. JC, is that something that you've bumped into? N- not clinically. I've seen publications on it, but obviously it's very rare to see a patient, uh, a cirrhotic these days with ACE and ARPS. At some point, they were actually used to prevent, for prevention of variceal bleeding. There were studies compared it against nadolol, for that. So for that reason, every now and then I would see all those patients on an ACE. But So I want to tell a little story about this because I'm old enough to remember when ACE inhibitors first came out. And, and of course, blood pressure. But there was a time before ACE inhibitors, Roger? How, how old are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> Did you do bloodletting? Because of the- so um, 
you know, uh, blood pressure is uh, cardiac output times resistance. Or, and uh, so in really bad heart failure, you know, your cardiac output goes down. So you're ma- maintaining your blood pressure by increasing your resistance, which a lot of which is A2 mediated, angiotensin 2 mediated, which is kind of the basis for increasing cardiac output by blocking that. But the, but it's, you could be so severe, your cardiac output could be so severe that your, your blood pressure is really being maintained by that by angiotensin 2. So that when Captopril was started was first starting to be used as a afterload reducer for heart failure, there were these reports where someone would take a Captopril, a single Captopril pill, they would go into shock. They would they would have absolutely no blood pressure because their blood pressure was 100% angiotensin dependent. And so for a while there, I mean, I don't know how this changed, but for a while there, the word was, if you're going to start an ACE inhibitor, you would take a 12.5 milligram Captopril pill, which is the smallest they came in. You dissolve it in water and you'd give them a sip. And if they tolerate it, they'd get two sips because they were that scared of doing it. But it just tells you, you know, how important this this can be in in certain physiology. Now, I've never, I don't think anybody does that anymore. But that was a thing when I was a fellow. You would, as the cardiologist, be super, super careful when they first started blocking that system because it's it was so important for some of these really severe cardiomyopathies. I did have a question for the group because, you know, he talks about, angiotensin 2 being responsible for as much as 40 to 50 percent of sodium and water reabsorption in the proximal tubule. Have you guys clinically seen hyponatremia with ACEs and ARBs? I mean, you would think that or a diuretic effect. Yeah, right? or something. I mean, clinically, I don't ever think about it like this. No, but I think that this may be related to, like, for example, when you're maxim, when you have, I, what I have seen clinically is like when patients are on um, a really high chlorthalidone dose and then we max out the ACE quite quickly, these patients tend to get more volume depre- depleted in electrolyte abnormalities than not. And I never really understood why. The other thing to think about, since it's proximal, if you were to shut down the sodium reabsorption, that would result in TG feedback. And that may be the cause of the drop in GFR that we see with ACE inhibitors more so than, you know, everything with this hemodynamics we talked about in the glomerulus. Maybe it's this TG feedback from blocking this uh, proximal sodium reabsorption. What I wanted to say that like what really struck me about this uh, section and more than anything, just how amazing, like echoing what Roger said, that this is such an uh, like amazing mechanism is that it's not even all nephrons that have the same response to renin, right? There's, they talk about how the cortical and more peripheral uh, gloms have uh, or have this production rather than the uh, juxtaposition medullar glomeruli. And I just thought that was so fascinating. Like how perfect is the kidney? And this is a continuation of something that we talked about in the very first chapter, right? We talked about that there's this differentiation that all all glomeruli are not equal, that the glomeruli in the outer cortex didn't have the long nephrons. And we talked about the size of glomeruli. They tended to be smaller glomeruli, that the larger glomeruli that were closer to the medullum, medullary were, uh, and they tended to be the ones that don't have this regulatory role. Um, I mean, I was going to ask because, you know, uh, JC, you talked about the ATHOS trial and that kind of came out after I was in residency. And so I was just going to, I haven't seen it. So. And do as a presser? Yeah, I have. And, um, yeah, and let me, if, if I may just a couple of things on, on the renal angiotensin system very quickly uh, that are important. Number one is that, uh, yes, angiotensin 2 is important for proximal tubular reabsorption, and the book talks about the hydrogen, I'm sorry, the sodium hydrogen exchanger as a mediator. And it's important to know that there has been a lot of work done over the last 15 years, and 
Alicia McDonough has done a lot of this work in, in, in Southern California, and she has demonstrated that it's not just the NHE, it's actually the NKCC2 and the cortical uh, thicosin loop of Henle is the NCT and the distal tubule. Even the sodium phosphate co-transporter can be localized from inside the cell into the brush border all directly by angiotensin 2 stimulation. And this is when you use a non-pressor dose of ANG2 because if you give ANG2 to the point that the pressure goes up, then hypertension overrides all those specific effects. As you, you know, obviously makes sense, right? You don't want to be retaining sodium when your blood pressure is 200 millimeters of mercury. So that's important to kind of expand on, on, on that. And the other quick comment I wanted to make is they, they, it, he talks about extra renal or uh, formation of angiotensin 2 in the kidney and other organs. You know, if you open the guide to books of physiology, it will say ACE is made in the lung, angiotensinogen is made in the liver, and that's how we learn it. And we know that that's not uh, the case because it's in all the organs, but they are the main organs. It's just important to go back to the basics because I did spend a lot of time trying to make the kidneys be the most important and many labs have done it, and it is at the end, it's true. But what is interesting is not the pneumocytes from the lung, what makes A so abundant in the lung, it's actually the endothelial cells from the lung that make A the most abundant. And it makes sense. A is in every single endothelial cell in our body. And it just happens that the lungs are richly vascularized and gram per gram end up having more A than other organs. And the other disease that, and in terms of clinical applications, you know, sarcoid, why do we measure A's in a sarcoid? Why sarcoidosis or tuberculosis patients have an elevated A's? You may think, well, because it's a lung disease. Well, it doesn't happen with pneumonia. It doesn't happen with bronchiectasis, for instance, right? It's actually the macrophages. The macrophages do express A's as well. And that's the reason why it gets shedded out of the macrophages, goes into circulation, and you measure it. So it's applicable to that. That's the reason why. It's not a great test. Uh, as we know, it's not a great test, but it's still, you can find it in you. Yeah, the, vaso, uh, the use of angiotensin 2 started a few years ago. There was a clinical trial called the ATHOS-3 trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And essentially, it was a randomized control trial, multinational trial that compared placebo against angiotensin 2, the primary endpoint was taken with patients with a vasodilatory shock, which they defined based on uh, cardiac index and uh, venous oxygen, etc. And, and they had to have a map between 55 and 70. And uh, the, the primary endpoint was to raise the map by 10 or up to 75. And they had to be at least on a certain dose of vasopressor. In this case, it was 0.2 micrograms per kg of norepinephrine or the equivalent pressor. So these were not necessarily patients on three pressors that they added a fourth pressor. These were patients that were one and two pressors, but they were not reaching the MAP goal, and they were randomized to receive placebo and angiotensin too. And long story short, the trial did show a, that the primary input was met. Patients that received angiotensin were more likely to hit the MAP goal that, uh, so it worked as a presser, essentially. Uh, the study was not powered to look at mortality. It was only 150 plus patients per group. But it was interesting for us in nephrology is that they published subsequently as a subgroup analysis of patients with this group that had AKI. And they had about 50 patients, 60 plus or something, and placebo angiotensin that had vasodilatory shock, but AKI as well. And in that small subgroup analysis that was published in Critical Care Medicine, 
they uh, showed a reduction in uh, or improvement in renal recovery. Patients were able to come off dialysis uh, more often when they were randomized to angiotensin II. Even survival benefit was shown with 100 patients, which is ridiculous. When you think about an ICU trial, you know, how many ICU? <laughs> uh, that just doesn't happen. So I, obviously, that's just a hypothesis generating post-hoc analysis. But Yes, we are using it uh, in the ICU in patients that are uh, really sick with two or three pressors. And uh, there is essentially patients that we think they have a chance to recover. We need to get them through the illness and there's a life expectancy beyond that. You know, they are uh, treated with angiotensin II. And uh, it's interesting. Sometimes patients, you give them ANCH2 and you got to stop all the other pressures because I have a brisk response and some others don't. Oh, I was, I was a resident when I when the Athos trials were being run. And so I remember that we had, I think, one patient. We had, I think, two patients enrolled in the trial while we we're in the ICU. And it's a blinded trial, so you don't know who's on what. But one person, they hung the mystery bag and nothing happened. And one person, they hung the mystery bag and they had to turn off the levofed. And it was very clear that the thing was working, whatever was in the mystery bag. It was really remarkable. Uh, and so I think for all of those, those of us who are like helping consent patients and helping enroll them into these trials, like it's cool to see something like this, that you like saw people in the unit or on the medicine floor getting something and see that turn into practice is really neat. Um, I will say that like we talked about earlier, like like Anna had talked about earlier, there are no new ideas in medicine. Someone had this smart idea a long time ago. And in the 1960s, Earl Del Greco was like giving people angiotensin to see if it could help their blood pressure and publishes like a case series of them. So this is like real old school stuff that actually just got turned around into this trial to look at blood pressure, not look at outcomes. Uh, if folks are really interested in the role of angiotensin II as like a potential presser, there's a really nice uh, EM Crit podcast where they interview the folks who ran this trial and they talk about how they view um, the role of angiotensin II as may, it shouldn't be your first presser. That should still be norepinephrine for almost everything. It might not even be your second presser. That probably should still be vasopressin for almost everything. But there are some people who try a little bit of vasopressin and suddenly their blood pressure shoots up. There are some people who you try a little bit of angiotensin too, and suddenly their blood pressure will shoot up. And it's kind of covering your physiologic bases for hypotension and letting you see what you can do to treat these patients more effectively. I think there's pluses and minuses there, but but a really interesting discussion that they had maybe two years ago or so. The last role of angiotensin two was regulation of GFR. It affects the constriction at the afferent and efferent arterial. We've talked a little bit about that. We have a lot more of that in the next section. It seems this is mediated by thromboxane. Uh, afferent arterial starts bigger. So when you reduce both the diameters of the afferent and the efferent arterial, you get much more hemodynamic significance in the efferent. And that's why it increases the uh, pressure in the capillar, uh, glomerular capillaries. Again, we'll be talking more about that next week. Um, but the important thing is it results in a drop in renal blood flow because you've increased the resistance, but by increasing the glomerular capillary uh, pressure, you are able to maintain GFR. And then the really cool part is that angiotensin II also stimulates prostaglandins that negate a lot of the vasoconstriction. And so you get this situation. This is exactly what Roger was talking about, what, what a selfish organ the kidney is, is it releases this renin, bumps up your angiotensin, 
constricts blood vessels all through the body, but not here in the kidney where we've got prostaglandins to maintain perfusion of the kidney. Very selfish move there. Selfish and brilliant, really. Selfish and brilliant. That's right. You know, if, if let's just put it this way. If the kidney was driving the trolley, it would run right through the proud of people. It would not, it would not turn the trolley off at all. And then uh, it can stimulate the contraction of the mesangium, reducing the surface area and reducing glomerular filtration rate. Yeah, I don't understand that one. And that seems so counterintuitive to what you'd want to have happen. Does anybody, that, uh, that's one thing I underlined in my book. I don't, I don't get that. Does anybody have a reason why that would work or what, what, what that would be good I, I for? I remember Roland Blantz did this study year, years ago showing the, a contraction, doing some morphometric analysis, showing contraction of the capillary tough upon angiotensin II stimulation. Uh, it kind of reduces surface area. Um, why, uh, uh, I guess it's way, another way to control, uh, GFR, but you're right. It kind of goes, the, goes in the opposite direction that the predominance of the efferent arterial, but you know, it's not the first time that the kidney would do, uh, things that are antagonistic in a way. You know, we were talking about this angiotensin two and prostaglandin. And I always tell when when the fellows read this chap this chapters, you know, if you are you confused, you have to be confused. You have to be if you're reading this book, you have to be confused. I was always I'm still confused because you read about angiotensin two stimulating prostaglandin, and then prostaglandin stimulating angiotensin two. You have a vasoconstrictor and a vasodilator. You could talk about a two globular feedback; it's even worse. You have prostaglandin being stimulated when the uh, sodium del- chloride delivery is low, and then prostaglandin eventually stimulates renin that stimulates angiotensin two, which is a vasoconstrictor. And, and I think it's the way the kidney handles things, and, and it doesn't even end there, because beyond that, when on the other hand, when you have increased sodium del- chloride, adenosine gets stimulated, but later on, nitric oxide gets stimulated, which is a vasodilator and adenosine and vasoconstrictor. So for me, the way it's the simplistic uh, view that I have is that this is just the way the kidney kind of self-checks. It kind of everything that it does, correct. Everything it does, there is a, there is a way to put a dead end and go back to the other state. You know? Okay, now I'm just going to say something that's like totally out there and I'm sorry to derail the conversation, but don't they say, doesn't he say in the book also how a lot of this increase in, in renin and angiotensin that we renin. see... Renin, 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 <laughs> We're not making cheese here. Actually, I just went to visit my parents, and now they got into making goat cheese. I milked the goats, by the way. So anyway, I thought I thought they were on a horse farm last week. No, it was a horse farm. Now yes, they got goats. They have goats, horses, chickens, everything. But anyway, um, he's saying that a lot of this increase in these hormones are um, are local, and you don't see a systemic. So that's why you don't see this the, a lot of variation in blood pressure. Uh, yes, I, I I read that paragraph and I, I I'm a, not sure um, that you know we have a better understanding these days uh, because it's it, it states that uh, that uh, angiotensin two there's a difference in degradation right uh, that angiotensin two uh, there's a difference in how much is degraded compared to prostaglandins. 
angiotensin, the kidneys are have an incredible machinery to degrade angiotensin too. You know, we think about ACE conversion, conversion, conversion. Most of the enzymes in the glom are not ACE. You don't make much ang2 in the glom. Yeah, it's actually enzymes that get rid of angiotensin too. Aminopeptidase A, neuralgin. Uh, they are expressed in the glom. And it kind of makes sense because the book describes that the angiotensin II gets to a thousand-fold greater concentration in the kidney compared to the systemic values. And you would think, yeah, if you have such a high concentration, you better have a good machinery to get rid of it. And it does. It does. So that's why that statement from that paragraph, I'm not sure... Uh, if it's still accurate, because, uh, you know, as I said, it's a, it's something that gets neglected. And when people talk about the RAS, it's all about H2 going to H1, going to H2 by A's. And there is so much, uh, uh, we don't see it clinically. We're starting to see it now with the whole H2 storm and coronavirus. People start talking about H2 all of a sudden when having decades of research on it. Um, but, you know, it, it became center of attention for another reason. But it's just one more example of how complex the RAS is and, and beyond this NH2 going to, I'm sorry, going NH1 going to NH2 via I like the statement VIAs. that the net effect is to maintain GFR. It's not to raise it, it's not to decrease, it's not to raise blood pressure, not to decrease blood pressure, it's to maintain. And that really helped me kind of stop being like, well, which direction is it? Because all of my notes that I was making on this chapter was like, so is it up or is it down? At the end of the day, what is it? And at the end of the day, it's to maintain things, which is a really complex and beautiful system for that. And then the last section of the chapter is the control of renin secretion. It, he writes that it's primarily related to sodium intake, increased sodium intake, decreased renin. Uh, this is mediated by baroreceptors in the afferent vessel wall, in the heart, uh, where it activates sympathetic nervous system and catecholamines, which then stimulate renin, and cells of the macula densa in the early distal tubule, which detect decreased chloride delivery, uh, getting us ready for the TG feedback we will learn more about next week. And that, that kind of, as far as we wanted to go tonight, uh, does anybody have any other final thoughts at uh, one hour and 50 minutes to Took get through half a chapter. Took him longer than that to write it, though. You know? <laughs> We're going to need to do better than this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I want to uh, I want to say something about this whole system that just uh, is remarkable to me. And it, I always like to harbor back to evolution. You know, the way I look at it is, that, you know, we left the oceans. And when we left the oceans, we had to maintain our volume. You don't have volume, you don't have blood pressure, you don't have blood pressure, you die. And volume always wins. And the kidney is really, really good at that. And it has to be good at that. And that's why the renin-angiotensin system is so important. It's so powerful and so sensitive uh, because for 99% of the time that we've, 99.9 .9 probably percent of the time that we've been around, we didn't, you know, we were just wandering around without having extra salt. You know, salt has only been available the last you know, five or 10,000 years. Uh, uh, salt was a commodity. There were the salt uh, um, trade was a very big deal and not everybody had access to salt. So I think we evolved without having much sodium available. And so therefore we were always risk of being volume depleted. And so we've got this very powerful system to maintain sodium. Uh, we're very good at reabsorbing it and also maintaining our blood pressure in the, in the event that we don't have enough. And they're all related, renin, angiotensin, vasoconstriction, salt retention, aldosterone. It's a really remarkable thing. Um, there's this um, tribe in uh, the Amazon and they, where they don't add any salt to their food. 
And they measure their urine. They didn't measure their stool, but they measure their urine sodium output, and they put out one milli, one to two milliequivalents of sodium a day. Now, you know, the average uh, diet is five, four, five grams or 250, you know, milliequivalents or something, and they put out one, which means they're essentially eating no sodium and putting out no sodium, which tells you just how powerful this system is, that you don't really have to eat any sodium, almost none, and you can maintain balance because it is so very, very good at that. Right. That's always that, that those Indians are a great example of uh or those excuse me, those first tribe first nation Indi- uh, indigenous first nation. Seriously. Indigenous They're people. First tribe. Uh, we have to edit this out. <laughs> that Oh, I know, I'm the worst. I'm, I really am. I, I my I can't wash off my white privilege. I just can't. I, it 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 puts the lie to the Aldo is bad for you because these guys walk around with sky high Aldo levels and they don't smell any cardiac disease, right? They have none at all. Their blood pressures are very low, and you know it's not it's not that Aldo's toxic. It's Aldo plus hypertension that's probably yeah. I think French fries taste terrible. <laughs> it's like well, but I think this is what we touched on also in the first uh, chapter, right? That may, when we were kind of initially dumping on the kidney, like how inefficient it is, but then we went back and said, well, maybe it's for this, uh, just uh, really trying to be as efficient as possible to maintain the sodium. That's ultimately maybe the goal of the of the kidney, which now I'm oversimplifying it, but. <laughs> And remember, you know, the ACE inhibitor story that was figured out from um, uh, Pit Viper. And a Pit Viper, basically, its its bite is similar to an ACE inhibitor. And why would that work? Well, it works because it's going to bite organisms or creatures that really don't have the kind of same kind of sodium extra blood pressure that we have. And therefore, they could have vascular collapse. So it's just absolutely, uh, I love going back to evolution and biology to see how these things all work. It's an amazing system. So what you're saying is I'm eating chili cheese dogs in case I get bitten by a snake? You never know when it could happen. Imagine prescribing like one bite of Pit Viper Q six hours for the rest of time for your patients. Like, thank God for drug companies. <laughs> Seriously, big pharma, I appreciate it. <laughs> what you were mentioning, uh, uh, Joel, about... Uh, making aldo look like evil and it happens with angiotensin too right in in, in nephrology in particular we have always learned to be uh to hate ang2 try to block it in any possible way and now we have angiotensin 2 as a presser in patients that are in shock and angiotensin 2 levels endogenously are already through the roof yet we give it more patients in shock have norepinephrine through the roof hey let's give it more Patients with heart failure in the past will get natriuretic peptide levels. We gave him Neseritide, Natricor. Remember that? We gave him that. That, that, even, didn't work, that didn't work out so well. It didn't work. But the <laughs> principle of giving something that the body's trying to produce to keep the, the human alive is we use pharmacologically. So I think it's not just a thing as an evil uh, compound. It just depends on what the disease or physiological state it is. Correct. Yeah. Any last thoughts? So we need a, 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 any good show titles for this. I mean, I'm going with Pit Viper for right now. Something about a Pit Viper again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, I think we're done here. We will be back next month. We'll have to pick a date. It's too late to pick a date. Let's just make sure we save this file correctly. So uh, hit, the, hit the stop button. 